Good morning. Good morning, class. <laughs> no. Um, before we get started today, um, there was a question that was brought up in my small group last week in regards to Israel and election, and I don't feel like I was very clear in my response, so I typed up a few quotes um, from the back of Timothy Keller's book. How many of you have this book? Okay. Yeah, so um, I've asked Kathy in our small group to read it to our group, but I wanted to let you know that I'm happy to share it with anyone from Cheryl's group as well, so if interested in looking at it. So how many of you needed to read these chapters this week? Raise your hand. I needed to read them for sure. The sharp, sharp sword of God's word. Uh, the title for our study this morning um, and today the outline, everything's a little bit different. We are entering into kind of a different um, section of the Book of Romans. So um, our title today is Being a Living Sacrifice. So did you hear the story about the lobster at the restaurant that crawled onto the customer's plate wanting to be eaten? No? Well, neither have I, because no one likes to be a sacrifice, right? But um, when we consider, when we look at all that God has done for us in Jesus Christ, Paul urges us, you know, offer yourselves to God. It's the reasonable thing that we can do to a God who has done so much for us. So, and it's a joy. It's really a joy and a delight. But offering ourselves to God is a sacrifice, but um, we get the benefit <laughs> of, you know, our relationship with God and, um, and the exciting work that the Holy Spirit does within us as we are transformed into the image of Christ. But so the rest of our study in Romans, we are going to move from these doctrine, doctrines that we have been immersed in, really, um, the past few weeks, and now we're going to focus on living for God in view of God's mercy. So how we will worship God as a living sacrifice. So let's put up um, our outline for today. And I've put those subpoints here, but I didn't put verses after them. Some of them kind of overlap, so you can just kind of follow along as we, as we go. So let me uh, start off with prayer before we open God's word, and I'm going to grab my Bible here. Never mind, I don't have my Bible, so <laughs> don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. I think I have everything written down. I rarely ever um, go to it during, during the lesson anyhow, but let me pray. Father, you are so patient with us. We are so grateful, especially as we look at everything that you've taught us this week, that you bear with us. What is man that you're mindful of us, Lord? But you, O oh God, are love. And you, oh God, are full of mercy. And uh, I just pray as we go through this today that we will see you in a new way, that we will um, hear from your heart this morning, Lord, and that we will be transformed by your mighty word. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay. Our first verse. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. 
So as you've probably heard before, therefore is there for a reason. Um, we just had Paul at the end of last chapter giving this amazing doxology of praise. Oh, the depths of the riches of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. I mean, we've seen Jesus, uh, the gospel, all of God's love, his mercy, his grace to us, our secure position in Christ, our glorious future that's been promised to us, all of his mercy. So what are we going to do with all that God has given us? Well, Paul urges us, he beseeches us, he implores us, present yourself to God. We're to come before God. We are alive, but we're going to offer, place ourselves on the altar and be willing to die to ourselves and to our own will and to live for God and his will, thus a living sacrifice. It's a continual offering of ourselves to be fully consecrated to God and his purposes. So Paul says to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. And this is clearer when we go back to Romans 6, which we didn't go through in our study yet or before, but it says this, and do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. So it's our eyes, our ears, our mouths, our hands, our feet, everything. It's a total commitment to God. And this is considered an acceptable sacrifice, holy and pleasing, holy and acceptable to God. And Paul says it's our spiritual worship or our spiritual act of worship in other versions too, which really means our logical way to worship based on what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. For the ancient Jews, being a living sacrifice meant to live constantly um, in, a, in a state of worship to God. So here we see what we can gather from this first section is that authentic worship of God is personal, it's internal, and it's in the offering of ourselves to him. Okay, next we're going to see what we're going to do with our minds in verse 2. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. And conform means fashioned. If you remember, we talked about that when we were to be conformed to the image of Christ. Paul's saying, don't be fashioned by this world. And the world, um, world is also translated age. So what is this world or this age um, that Paul's talking about that we're not to be uh, uh, conformed to? Well, it's not the physical world that we live in. Um, it's this present age as opposed to the age to come, which is in Jesus Christ. Or it's also been called this evil age or this present world system um, that's under the influence of Satan. So the pattern of this world or world system is a way of thinking that opposes God and is contrary to who we are to be in Jesus Christ. It's been described as a worldview, a worldly, worldly philosophies, worldly ways, which contains like secularism, humanism, materialism, relativism, it's all the ways of the world. So we're to break away from all that type of thinking, everything that belongs to this evil world system. So how is this done? Paul says, be transformed. 
And this is from the wor word metamorpho. It's where we get our word um, metamorphosis from. And this is not passive. We are to actively renew our minds, or as the word means, our in, or as the word means, our intellect, um, our understanding um, through God's word. That's how we do it. And we're going to be completely different people that we have been before. It's a it's an internal transformation. Um, so we go to God as our source of wisdom, not to man, and we weigh every counsel um, that we get from everyone. I mean, even from Christians against the word of God, um, the truth of God's word. So let God transform us, not the world, is what this is talking about here. So remember, that's our goal in Christ, is to be conformed to the image of Christ. So metamorphosis. And by this being transformed, we test and we discern what the will of God is, and we won't be led astray by this world system, and we will um, please the Lord. So, um, next portion is just on using our gifts. Paul begins a, a section on serving God. It may not really be clear to you at the beginning that that's what he's talking about, but, um, but he talks about serving God with the spiritual gifts that God gives us. But what he starts off by saying is that we need to be humble about this. So, he says, by the grace given me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the measure of faith God has given you. So Paul is communicating in regards to spiritual gifts. We aren't to think that we are so gifted that we move outside of the bounds of what God, of God's gifting to us, of what he's given us. We're to be content with our own function in the body of Christ uh, not, you know, coveting someone else's position. So the phrase, think of yourself more highly here, it means to overthink or overesteem. God has given each of us a gift or gifts, and we are to seek his wisdom in it, and, um, but not to think that we can do things that we're not called to do that he's not calling us to do. So Matthew Henry once said, how blessed the Christmas, Christ, how blessed is Christmas? I mean, really. How blessed the Christian church if all the members did their duty. Instead of coveting the highest stations or the most splendid gifts, let us leave the appointment of his instruments to God and those in whom he works by his providence. So how can we think soberly of ourselves? Um, be thankful for the gifts. Seek God's wisdom and how to use them and operate in his strength. The measure of faith that it says here at, on that verse um, has been thought of in three ways, in case you were curious about that. Uh, the first is spiritual power given to each Christian for the discharge of his or her special responsibility. Um, so that's spiritual power. Um, the second is the amount of faith that God gives everyone in varying degrees. Okay, And, and the third is the equal gift of faith that all believers have, faith in Jesus Christ. Verses 4 and 5, which I, I didn't put up there, talk about the living organism of a church, how we each have different functions in the body, and we're dependent on one another for the whole thing to work. Um, even for a simple thing like this Bible study that Rose, you know, is putting on, she had to decide on it. She had to order the books. Um, there's a person who, or maybe she had help with that too, I don't know, person to update the website, receptionist to answer questions or direct calls to Rose, someone for advertising, church bulletin, someone to book the room we're in, small group leaders, Kathy, Cheryl, 
facilities, technology to be working, childcare workers, all for you to study God's word. Not to mention Timothy Keller, his staff, your editors of your Bible. Do you see how we all, we all work together with our different gifts? So we all need each other. Um, verse 6, we have different gifts according to the grace given to each of us. So the word gifts is charisma, if you probably knew, I don't know if you already knew that, but it means grace gift, um, charis is grace, and ma is gift. Um, it is a gift from God, a spiritual gift, not something that you, you know, learned along the way in your life. Your gift or your gifts are, are intended to benefit the body of Christ and to bring glory to God and to be used in the power of the Holy Spirit. We have different spiritual gifts, just like we have uh, different natural gifts and different personalities. God is incredibly creative in the distribution of his spiritual gifts. And Paul doesn't obviously exhaust in our passage today all of the gifts. And as we know, there's overlapping of gifts in people as well. But um, Paul lists these gifts oops, here. And we're just going to go through them briefly, um, but just to note that in the lexical aids and commentaries and other types of study tools, there are differences in the definition. So if I use a definition that you're not accustomed to or leave something out, you just ignore it and <laughs> move on. But the first one here is uh, prophecy. And prophecy is not fully defined in the New Testament. So it's often debated and I hope not to be dogmatic about it, but it generally refers to the proclaiming of the word of God. So speaking for God, his word. Um, prophecy is the same word in here, is the same word as in Revelation 19.10, uh, where it says, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. So that makes me think along the lines of the gospel, maybe, but... Some have referred to prophecy in this passage as the receiving of special wisdom uh, or knowledge directly from the Holy Spirit, as in the case of Agabus in Acts 11:28. Um, but Timothy Keller says that here in our passage, it seems to mean preaching or anointed utterance. Okay, verse 7, if it's serving, let him serve. If it's teaching, let him teach. And serving is ministering in the King James Version. Um, and, and there's a, a broad range of definitions for serving. But um, one that was consistent is serving the needy um, that I found. Um, I remember my um, BSF teacher <laughs> in Romans had said that uh, when it says let him serve here, it means just do it. Like the <laughs> Nike phrase, just do it. So if that's your gift, just do it. But I'm told there isn't a real good English equivalent for that, for that phrase. But, and then there's teaching. If God is calling you to teach, then again, just do it. Um, even if you feel unqualified to do it, but God is calling you to teach. Um, Martin Luther said, As some who are not called presume to preach, conversely, teachers flee from teaching so that the word of God is hindered in both ways. So uh, you don't need to be, you know... Beth Moore, K. Arthur, or whoever. You might love and respect whoever is popular. Um, God uses all sorts of personalities to share his word. It's the Holy Spirit's power that counts. That's all that matters. Uh, even the famed Jonathan Edwards, I'm sure you've heard uh, Buster speak of him before, but he's credited with the great revival. Um, it's been said that he rarely ever looked up from the paper that he wrote his sermons on. 
And I don't know that, that people in our day and age would have given him a second thought, right? Because we're, we have such an age of charismatic teachers and preachers. So anyways, however, if you, if, you, if you do teach, you need to make sure that you are called to teach because it carries a warning in Scripture. Not many of you should presume to be teachers, my brothers, because you know that we who teach will be judged more strictly. So a teacher needs to be able to guard their tongue as James elaborates on, actually, in that whole passage, if you'll go on, he talks about the tongue, you know, all after that. And he includes himself here, we who teach. So I wonder if he had experienced, you know, some of that. But anyways, verse 8 has uh, the spiritual gifts of encouraging, giving, leadership, and mercy. Encouraging in the New American Standard is exhorting. Um, translated, it means to call near to comfort, to console, and it even can mean to counsel, you know, so. And then the gift of giving can uh, show itself in making great sacrifices with all types of resources. It doesn't have to be money. Uh, it can be in wise giving. It can be in giving anonymously uh, and, and more, so. And then leadership, of course. Rose is our great example, and, um, you know, our fearless leader, Rose. This, this person who has the gift of leadership uh, depends on God's direction for ministry, you know, for ministry or projects, and people generally follow them. You know, that's, that's that gift. Showing mercy can mean caring for those in need, such as the sick and the poor. A gal from our last church that I was in, she adored visiting people at the hospital. Now, my husband would just he can't stand to put his foot into a hospital. So, but it's definitely a gift to be able to visit sick people and to really encourage them and love on them. It's, it's a gift. Um, so the use of all these gifts is our response to God and his mercy. So will you ask God to show you how to use your unique gift to the fullest? So to build on really our first point, Paul is saying, offer yourselves to God Use your gifts according to what he has given you. Now we're going to look at, um, based on what God has done, um, how we respond by loving one another. Love must be sincere, hate what is evil, cling to what is good. You know, the problem with having so much scripture to cover, this, this second portion, if you ever get a chance to study it, is really fascinating, but it was just too much for me to, to put up there. But Paul's saying that love cannot be hypocritical. The Greek word for sincere is anupokritos, and it means literally not hypocritical. And so the underlying Greek word is often applied to an actor who plays a part on stage. Douglas Moo said that Christians can avoid love that is mere play acting if they put into practice the commands that follow in this chapter. Um, Timothy Keller gave some sound, vice, sound advice on how to practice real love when you don't feel like it in order to not be fake, you know, not to be hypocritical. And so if you get a chance to look at his book, too, I, I found that that was, that was a um, really practical advice that he gives there. Paul tells us what real love is in 1 Corinthians 13, and I won't go through it, but as we know, it's patient and kind, doesn't envy, doesn't boast, is not proud, which are some of the things that he has talked about here. And believe it or not, this passage on on real love comes right after he talks about spiritual gifts too. So it makes you just really wonder, you know, was there a big problem with envy and, and other issues 
in, in, the, in the church. So, verse 10. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Honor one another above yourselves. Brotherly love, you know, we know that word Philadelphia. That's Philadelphia is the city of brotherly love. Um, but we're a, we're a family of believers, and we're to honor, lift up, and exalt one another. We don't worship one another, obviously, but as Keller says, it's to treat uh, one another as valuable and as precious, because that's what we are to God, right? And the thought is, is that Paul is still speaking on the topic of ministry and spiritual gifts here. So we're to look to others' needs and even their desires and to lay down our desires and our rights. Um, it's the love of First John, in speaking of uh, brotherly love, First John 3.16. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. So it doesn't hurt to let others go first. Verse 11, never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. I mean, how could we not be excited about serving God when we have these, we've been given supernatural gifts, really, that affect eternity? They do. So the word fervor means to boil. And a literal translation of this would be in respect to the spirit's boiling. So are you bubbling over with zeal uh, for serving God? with his gifts? Have you offered yourself to God that he may use the gifts that he's given you without any reservations, um, no restrictions at all? Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. Share with the Lord's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. So we're joyful on account of the fixed and certain hope that we have in Jesus Christ. And it's this joyful hope that enables us to be patient in affliction, in our own affliction, in the affliction of other people, those we love, remembering, you know, our verse that our sufferings are not worthy to be compared with what, you know, what's, or our sufferings are not worth the glory that's to be revealed, right, to us. So, and then faithful in prayer, we persevere knowing that God is able and he's willing to answer in accordance uh, with his good purposes. Share with those in need. One author said, it's an abomination before God if we don't help each other. Cults even help each other. Uh, at my old church, a, a woman had this event um, each month, and during the event, she would have this time called pay it forward. I don't know if you've ever heard of that before. Have you done that ever here? Okay, well, I wasn't going to say if you did, but Someone would raise their hand. It was just a short time in one of her events. They'd raise their hand with a need that they had or someone that they knew had a need, like, you know, we, this person doesn't, needs a refrigerator or something. And then someone would raise their hand and, you know, do it. Or they'd come back the next week and have a way to do it. But anyways, it was a real practical way to meet the needs of the women in, the, in the, these normally unspoken needs uh, in the church. So continuing on, Paul reminds us how we are to be completely different than the world around us as followers of Jesus Christ. Bless those who persecute you, bless, and do not curse. Um, if we're Christians, we can expect that not everyone is going to love us. Uh, some may even harm us, but these are opportunities for us to really display Christ to our world. We are continued to bless, and as Jesus says in Luke 6, we're to pray for those um, who persecute us 
And Paul gave us an example from his life in 1 Corinthians 4. When we are cursed, we bless. When we are persecuted, we endure it. When we are slandered, we answer kindly. We have become the scum of the earth, the garbage of the world. So Paul wasn't asking his readers to do something that he was not willing to do uh, himself or what, or what he hadn't already done. Um, rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. Just as we live our life in, lives in such an intimate union with Jesus Christ, we're also called to be so united uh, with other believers that we're not only to share their joys, which is, which is very easy, but also to share in their sorrows. I don't know if you knew, but, um, but widows in the second year after the loss of their husbands, they find that that's the toughest time for them because it's the time that um, nobody comes around anymore, nobody calls, everybody figures you're just okay, while the widow is really settling into her life. The first year is flurried activity with, that, with the loss of her husband, but the second year is really a time of deep sorrow and deep um, missing you know, of her spouse. So she feels more alone than ever. Who, who is suffering that may need to hear from you this week? Paul again asked the Romans in verse 16 not to be proud or conceited. Does this seem like a theme as well that we always see? It's a concern of his. But to be willing to associate with people who are in a lower estate. He then tells us, um, and this is really the portion about uh, loving our enemies, do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everybody. Uh, as it's been said, we don't need to let evil make us evil, right? God knows what's best for our souls. And when it says, be careful to do what's right, it comes from actually two root words. And it means that we're to take thought beforehand, to think it through, not, you know, so it's not letting our emotions get the best of us, um, consider our actions, you know, counting to 10, <laughs> counting to 10,000, obviously praying, you know, is the thing to do, but, and to do what's right, as we see here. And Paul asks us to live in peace with everyone in verse 18, as far as it depends on us, as we know, you know, we can only do so much to live in peace with others. And then he tells us to trust God when others harm us in verse 19. Do not take revenge, my friends, but leave room for God's wrath, for it is written, it is mine to avenge, and I will repay, says the Lord. So this is a quote from Deuteronomy 32, and it's quoted again in Hebrews too, but taking revenge, as we know, is, is the way of the world, right? Um, even if it's simply, give, you know, giving a harsh word to someone who's given a harsh word to us. That's wor worldly. We're to let God stand for us and to show our faith by patient trust in him. He will avenge. He will repay. Instead, Paul tells us what we're to do. We are to, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. And this is from Proverbs 25. Um, but Paul omits this phrase here, which is, and the Lord will reward you, which I think is such a lovely thought and a lovely motivation, right? But you might find it interesting to know that the word for burning coals here is anthrax, 
Did you know that? I thought that was interesting. But the interpretation of this verse throughout the ages has been that mainly that guilt or shame would come, uh, would result from your goodness to the person, they would repent and that they would be restored. And it may stem from the uh, Egyptian ritual where someone would show their repentance or their remorse by, um, by carrying a pan of burning, burning charcoal on top of their head. It was like a public display of, you know, I'm so sorry, this is what I'm doing. But another interpretation that Hodge speaks of, which I really didn't even want to mention because it kind of sounds harsh, but I thought I'd throw it in here anyways, is that if we do good to someone who offends us and we leave them in the hands of God, the punishment of burning coals will be more severe than we could possibly afflict. And, but that would keep it in line with um, this 1219, leave room for God's wrath. So I can see how, how he might throw that in there. But, and then a third interpretation, which really isn't an interpretation at all, but it just states that Paul couldn't mean either of these things because he's already told us to bless those who curse us. And if our motivation is their guilt or their you know, physical pain, then that seems contradictory. So the goal is just to win an enemy over. So those are the three different views of it. So Paul ends this section with a wonderful verse um, for us, a wonderful challenge. Do not be overcome with evil, but overcome evil with good. And overcome means to be subdued or conquered. Um, we're not to be conquered by the evil of this world or let it get the best of us. We're to conquer it conquer it with good. And um, I have to share with you what Keller said here in case you don't have the book again. Um, such good tips this week. He says this, the secret of overcoming evil is for us to see evil as something above and distinct from the evildoer. And I don't know about you, but I tell you that is the only thing that has ever worked for me in overcoming evil. So the principle for our section is this. Our response to God's mercy is evident in the way we show love to all people. In the body of Christ, with our friends, even with our enemies, we love. We love. We show love to all. And um, I know that's kind of lengthy there. You know, Paul has given us, I was talking to Kathy before, had so much to chew on in this lesson. Your head might be swirling. I know mine is, but... Um, but we need, to, we need to be reminded about these things over and over and over again. Um, someone wrote that the problem with being a living sacrifice is that we tend to crawl off the altar <laughs> quite a bit. I went to, I have an example from my life, I went to the dollar store with my kids the other day, and normally we don't let our kids have any candy, but they, the only place they get candy is church. I don't know what that says, but <laughs> they get it at church. Um, but they had this bag of Tootsie Pops, and I hadn't had Tootsie Pops for a long time, and I was just really vulnerable that day. So I bought this bag of to Tootsie Pops. Well, it happened when we were back at home, and I dug into the bag. There was only one chocolate in there, and chocolate, you know, is my favorite. And I did sort of know that it's my daughter Chloe's favorite, too. So I kind of sneakily took it when I'm opening the bag in front of them, you know, and I just kind of sneakily, you know, put it in my mouth. And, a few, and in a few seconds, Chloe said to me really sweetly, she goes, are there any chocolate ones? <laughs> and that really hurt, but I, I threw her a cherry one, you know. And Colin, <laughs> Colin, who watches out for her, 
said, Mom, you know, like pressing the point when I was already so embarrassed, Mom, aren't there any chocolate ones in the bag? You know Chloe loves chocolate ones. It was just like the Holy Spirit, you know, what kind are you eating, Mom, you know? So, and I'm like, oh, is this chocolate? <laughs> but anyways, we're called to love. I know that's awful. Isn't that horrible candy from a baby? I mean, that's really what it is. But we're called to love. You know, even in the little things, we are called to love. Sometimes I think the bigger things are easier to do, to love, than the little things. But we are to be living sacrifices. You know, we love our enemies. We return good for evil. We honor others above ourselves. We invest in people, which, as we know, takes time. We bear their burdens. We give our time, our money, our energies to serving God in our families, our communities, our church, missions. Um, we don't do this to be saved. We do it because of God's great mercy, which he has poured out on us in Jesus Christ. So it's our response. It's our worship of God. That is how we worship God. So application questions are what little things in your life are keeping you off the altar? How might your life be transformed if you always sought the, sought the best for other people rather than yourself? And whom do you plan to bless this week that maybe has been cruel to you, done you harm, persecuted you? Will you remember to love and pray for whoever the Holy Spirit may have put on your heart this morning? Before we get, uh, begin chapter 13 on submitting to authorities, um, a backdrop for this section real quick is uh, Paul, for a time, had found some protection uh, in the Roman government um, who had thought that Christians were just sort of a, a little variety of Jews. So F.F. Bruce speaks that Paul's happy experience of Romans justice is probably reflected in this, in this passage that we're going to read when he speaks of governing authorities. And we know that not long after this, things changed for Paul, right, and also uh, changed for others. So that's just a little backdrop before we go in there. Let everyone be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. Consequently, whoever rebels against the authority is rebelling against what God has instituted, and those who do so will bring judgment on themselves. So here we're reminded that God has put in place all the authority in our lives that we are under. Um, Nothing surprises him. He is sovereign. Remember, we had spoken the, of the fact that he had raised up Pharaoh, even for his own purposes, right? In the book of Daniel, it says, It is he, God, who changes the times and the seasons. He removes kings, and he establishes kings. Once again, God has the authority, the freedom, to establish the types of governments and who the rulers of those governments are. Um, he has delegated power um, to all governing authorities, and they're accountable to him. Um, therefore, when we do not submit, um, we do not submit to God, and we invite judgment, as our passage tells us, on ourselves. But we also know from Scripture that we're not to submit to authority when it would cause us to sin against God. Examples in Scripture are the Hebrew midwives that refused to kill the male babies, Hebrew babies, Daniel, who continued to worship God, um, thereby going against the decree. Peter and the apostles refusing to stop teaching in the name of Jesus, um, even though they were told to do so. As one commentator quoted, when we are asked or forced to disobey the commands of God, we must not submit. 
For rulers hold no terror for those who do right, but for those who do wrong. Do you want to be free from fear of the one in authority? Then do what is right, and you will be commended. For the one in authority is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for rulers do not bear the sword for no reason. They are God's servants, agents of wrath, to bring punishment on the wrongdoer. Therefore, it's necessary to submit to the authorities, not only because of possible punishment, but also as a matter of conscience. So how do you view the government, the IRS, the police, um, others that are in authority? If you submit to the law, if you pay your taxes, if you don't commit crimes, then you can be free from knocks on your door, sirens on the freeway, a letter from the IRS in the mail. But Paul says if you do wrong, you should be afraid. And both in verses 3 and 4, he speaks of fear. Three times... Um, this authority is called God's servant, these two, and then in verse 6, I believe it is. Um, and this, Strong's has this as public servant, so it would be God's public servant. Um, but it's also called God's minister in the King James, NASB, and ESV. The authorities are above us are supposed to keep evil at bay. They're supposed to also provide for the safety, welfare, and the good of all the citizens that are under their watch. They don't bear the sword for nothing, as we see here, which means that they have authority and power to punish evil. We are to submit, it says here, not only because we don't want to be punished, but also as a matter of our conscience, and that's our conscience towards, towards God. We were, were to do everything for the glory of God. This is also why you pay taxes, for the authorities are God's servants who give their full time to governing. Give to everyone what you owe them. If you owe taxes, pay taxes. If revenue, then revenue. If respect, then respect. If honor, then honor. Uh, one scholar wrote that Paul and his readers in Rome lived under a government that was corrupt and brutal, and that the tax burden was so heavy that there was actually a tax revolt um, by the people in AD 58. So that was just a year after, uh, well, Many think that Paul wrote this in A.D. 57. There is some question about that, but just shortly after Paul wrote this letter. So Paul well understood the situation of what the tax, taxes were like in that time, but he asked Christians to respond differently. Um, Jesus made it clear, as we know in Matthew 22, that Christians are to pay their taxes, even to corrupt governments, give to Caesar what is Caesar's, remember. And even though our Father, you know, in heaven is Lord, over, over all these governments. So we're to also to give respect and honor to those in authority, um, whether we agree with their views or not. We remember that God is in charge and he's a just judge of all authority, and so we can be at peace while the world may rant and rave <laughs> over this. Um, and we're asked to pray for them, as Paul says in 1 Timothy I urge then, first of all, that petitions, prayers, intercession, and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and all those in authority, that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. Now, since Paul um, spoke of taxes and revenue in both 6 and 7, um, he begins verse 8 with, let no debt remain outstanding. Um, so we're to, we're to pay up as good citizens if we owe money. Um, but he says we will all, all, always owe the debt of loving each other. 
And he goes on to express in the next few verses what we covered in our lesson when we looked at chapter 8, which is that love is the fulfillment of the law. So I'm not going to dive into this section, but Paul simply reminds us that all the commands, uh, all the commandments are summed up in this one command, which is love your neighbor as yourself. So that's all we really need to say today, right? <laughs> love your neighbor as yourself. Okay, for our final section, um, Paul then says, and do this understanding the present time. The hour has already come for you to wake up from your slumber because your salva our salvation is nearer now than when we first believed. The night is nearly over. The day is almost here. So let us put aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us behave properly as in the day, not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual promiscuity and sensuality, not in strife and jealousy. So this understanding the present time, um, some feel that Paul knew that his time to share the gospel was limited. Um, it's probably not going to last forever. If you recall in the intro session, um, it was mentioned that Paul, again, most likely wrote this in the late uh, 50s. And F.F. F. Bruce states that the beginning of imperial persecution of Christians in 64 and 66 were really, were really already casting their shadows at this, at this point. So trouble was on the horizon, and that might be part of it. But Paul had also spoken about, if you remember at the beginning of chapter 12, um, of the world system, right? Or the evil, or this evil age. So this present time, that could, that could be the case for this also. Um, but he appears to be both exhorting and encouraging the Romans here. Wake up. Salvation is nearer now. Remember the adoption and the, the day, our, our glorification, all that we have to look forward to, our day of redemption um, that we spoke about in Romans 8. It's getting closer. He wanted them to have this eternal perspective. Uh, night is nearly over. Suffering is nearly over. The day is, al is almost here. Your joy's right around the corner. The Lord's near. So rouse yourself, he's saying. Put off sin. And you'll notice that he puts down here strife and jealousy. Strife is also dissension, which may not be obvious sins alongside sexual immorality, um, carousing, drunkenness. So put it off. Put all of those things off. And then he tells us what to put on. Rather, clothe yourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ and do not think about how to gratify the desires of the flesh. So how do we clothe ourselves in Christ? Um, lots of different interpretations. But, you know, Rose gave me this book over the summer um, in which the author said, be who you are, which sounds like a secular phrase, you know. I'm always a little <laughs> critical of those types of things. But the premise is we are already in Jesus Christ as believers. We've been declared righteous. Uh, we are holy to the Lord. Um, so, and as Galatians 3 says, we, we, we are already clothed in Christ, okay? So, but we are to be, but we are to be who we are in him, if that makes sense. We're to love and to act accordingly to what we already are, okay? So, along the same lines, Keller says, since we are legally in Jesus, we live as if we're clothed in him. And F.F. Bruce says to manifest outwardly what we are inwardly. But practically, I, I thought also in our passage, we have seen plenty of ways to clothe ourselves in Christ this morning. Um, 
as we love, love our enemies, submit, we're humble, we honor others, we serve. So that's the opposite of what we see here, how to gratify the desires of the flesh, right? So clothing ourselves in Christ. So the principle for this section is this. Our response to God's mercy is evident in the way we live as citizens in our temporary home. Um, so yes, our response to God's mercy is evident in the way we live as citizens in our temporary home. We submit to authorities, we love our neighbor, we clothe ourselves in Christ. So speaking of citizens, when people travel internationally, we need to learn the various laws, right, of the lands of the country we're traveling to. I, I read this USA Today article in regards to what's illegal in some countries, and I'm just going to list a few feeding pigeons in St. Mark's Square in Venice, Italy, because apparently the historic buildings um, get hit with a byproduct, uh, chewing gum in Singapore, unless it's medically therapeutic gum, running out of gas on the Audubons in Germany. The article said that normal drivers get all farfignugan behind the wheel. That's not a swear word, by the way, and don't appreciate it. Um, Number four is stepping on currency in Thailand because it bears the picture of the king of Thailand and it's insulting. And there's also spitting in public in Barcelona, driving while wearing flip-flops in Spain. You know, all these different laws that you may, may not know are out there. But so we obey the foreign country uh, laws, right? Knowing it's temporary, we are traveling, it's not our home. Similarly, it can be helpful um, to remember that when we're in this world. Even the USA is not our real home. Our home is with the Lord. Uh, but while we live here, we submit to authorities, even to their laws, even the laws that we might find silly. And we pay taxes, even knowing that part of those taxes might go to things that trouble us. They did in, in our Lord's time as well. Paul reminds us that we submit for God's sake. He's taking care of things. We know we won't be here forever. Our salvation is nearer now than when we first believed. Um, our bags are packed already, right? Yet no matter where we live or travel, we can clothe ourselves in Jesus while we're waiting. And we can be good citizens and good neighbors, loving others of our, as ourselves. Hebrews eleven sixteen says, um, we are longing for a better country, a heavenly one. God has prepared a city for us. So how will you live and glorify God in this foreign land? Are you clothing yourself uh, for your day of departure? And how does knowing what awaits you give you the joy and the strength you need to be a living sacrifice? I'm going to close with this verse. But our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, let's pray. Father, we thank you for your wise and wonderful word. We thank you for the ways that you admonish us, Lord, and how uh, there's something for everybody here this morning. I know there's many, many things for me. I pray that we'll all humbly submit to your word, Lord, and take it home and chew on it and, and be a blessing to our families, our neighbors, our communities, our church, and even our, even our neighbors that don't love us, Lord. Help us to bless them. Um, we thank you, Lord, that you show us how to be patient we thank you that, Jesus, you are the, the symbol of all humility and patience um, and, and goodness and mercy to those who, who did not love you, who were evil towards you. 
I pray, Lord, that you will transform us today and uh, that we will find joy in placing ourselves on the altar. We give you all the glory for this morning. It's in your precious, precious name we pray. Amen.